1: Hi and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. On today's show, we will explain everything from France's famous Dois du Sol and why it's caused a political row to how you could lose your newly acquired status as a French citizen. We'll look at the struggle of French villages to hold on to their boulangerie, whether the guillotine could ever make a comeback in France, and explain why Monaco on the French Riviera is known as a playground for the rich and famous. And we'll break down the complicated topic of energy ratings for French homes, and explain why they are really, really important for both renters and buyers. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and this week I've called on the help of the locals' team, Emma Pearson, Jen Mansfield, and John Litchfield. Thanks for being back with us all again. Welcome to all our listeners. This week, one place that has dominated French politics is pretty far from Paris. It's the Overseas department of Mayotte, which stands between Madagascar and Africa. And it's all to do with the highly sensitive subject of the droit du Sol. Before we bring in John Litchfield to explain this issue, Jen, just tell us what exactly is the droit du Sol in France?
0: So it's basically the right for children born in France to foreign parents to be eligible for French citizenship. And we're talking about it because, like you said, Ben, France's interior minister, Gérald Dominant, recently announced his desire to change the droit du sol for one part of the country, Mayotte. But first, let's explain droit du sol. People often translate this as birthright citizenship, but the French concept is very different from the American one, where someone is simply born on U.S. soil and automatically they're conferred citizenship. The French droit du sol makes it so that children born in France to foreign parents can acquire nationality either at the age of 13 or 18, provided they meet several other conditions. So at the age of 13, the foreign child's parent can apply for nationality on their behalf as long as the child has spent most of their time in France since the age of eight years old and they consent to being French, and they're living in France at the time of the application. So if you have a baby in France and immediately move back to your home country, then they won't get French nationality, basically. There's also the option to apply for citizenship at the age of 18 if the child is resident in France on their 18th birthday and they've been resident in France for at least five years since the age of 11. In France, only a few groups of people actually get citizenship at birth. That's children who are born to at least one French parent. Those who are born to a parent who was born in Algeria prior to July 3rd, 1962. Those born in France to a parent who was also born in France, even if they aren't a citizen. And children who are born stateless.
1: Okay, thanks, Jen. Just before I bring in John to explain the situation in Mayotte, we've heard a lot about this droit du sol in the news recently. Just remind us why.
0: So the droit du sol has been in the French press for the past few months, mainly because right-wing politicians also tried to add an amendment to the recent immigration bill. And that would have changed the conditions for acquiring French nationality for minors born to foreign parents. Ultimately, the Constitutional Council struck this out on procedural grounds. Uh, They did add a line into their explanation saying that Quote, on the merits, the appellant members criticised these provisions for infringing the principles of equality before the law and the indivisibility of the republic. Unquote.
1: Let's go to John, who joins us on the line from Normandy. We've just been explaining the droit du sol in France, John, but why is the French interior minister, Gérald Darmanin under pressure to act in the Department of Mayotte? And why has his proposal caused such an uproar?
2: Well, Mayotte is the poorest county or département in France. It's the poorest, the most troubled of the five overseas départements of France. The problem was that when it voted to be French in the 1970s, it separated itself from the archipelago of the Comoros Islands between Africa and Madagascar, which it is geographically part and also racially, ethnically, religiously part. It's the same people, essentially. But they decided to be part of France. The Comoros Islands went off and became independent. And now, Comoros Islands is in extraordinary problems economically so is Mayotte, but not as badly off as the Komoros. And so there's been a huge influx of people, boat people, coming across the 60 miles or so of sea between the nearest Comoros Island into Mayotte. So now the population of Mayotte, which was around about 40 or 50,000 20 or 30 years ago, is now 300,000, more than half of whom are not local people. They're either from the Comoros Islands or from the African mainland. And so the local people say that their lives have been sort of destroyed, you know, that it's economically, socially, crime-wise, impossible to live in. And they've been begging the French government to do various things about it. But one of the things they've said is that what brings a lot of those people over is the knowledge that once they're in a French territory, once they're in Mayotte and they have a child there, that child can become French. And once they have a child that can be from French, they can have a French residency card and have the hope of maybe one day going to France in Europe, the mainland of France. That's not quite as simple as that. We can come back to it. But that is one of the big poll factors, according to the local people. And so there's been a drumbeat for a long time to change the constitutional obligation of France to allow anyone who's born on French soil to become
1: French. John, what are the chances of it succeeding? What would need to happen?
2: I think it's probably going to go through. I mean, you know, it needs there are several ways you can pass a constitutional change in France. You you have to have a law first of all, which is agreed by both houses of parliament and that has to either then go to a referendum of the whole country, which I think is unlikely in this case, or to a congress of the both houses of parliament, in which you need two-thirds vote to pass the change. I think given the number of right and far-right and centrist MPs in the National Assembly and in the Senate, that should go through. But there is something I've spotted, which other people don't seem to have spotted, which may actually make that harder. Dominant didn't just say he would do that. He would abolish the, the droit de sol in Mayotte. One of the things that the people in Mayotte have been complaining about is that France does not allow the people that come there and are given residence permits locally to go on to France proper in Europe. There is a restriction on that. That's another exemption. Mayotte already has from French law. And so you can have a residence permit from Mayotte and you can't go on to France. He says, and that's also therefore causing the sort of bottleneck of people who are building up on the island because they can't go on anywhere else. Domino said at the weekend, yes, we're going to abolish the Guadassol, but we're also going to allow, when that happens, we will allow people to leave Mayotte and come to the rest of France. So that means he's actually sort of restricting emigration into Mayotte, but he's actually increasing emigration from Mayotte into France. Now, that isn't when the right and far-right stop shrieking and saying, hey, we've won, they will spot that maybe and realise that maybe this mm. is not such a far-right measure as people are saying.
1: Indeed. John, you mentioned the far-right there. They've obviously called for this measure of ending the Douai-du-Sol du to be extended you know, throughout the whole of France. What what are the chances of that ever happening?
2: Well, you know, if Marine Le Pen, God forbid, was ever to come to power, short am sure one of the things she would try and push for. But again, that would need a constitutional change. Again, you would need to have a referendum in favour, Would that get a referendum in favour? I'm not sure it would. It would certainly be very difficult to get a two thirds vote for that to be changed in the whole of France unless there was a huge right and far right majority in in some future National Assembly, which I suppose one cannot rule out. So it's possible, but I I don't think that's very likely. And that's why I think when the left is saying that this is a kind of uh, harbinger of what's going to come for the whole of the country, and the right is saying as well. They're both refusing to recognise, A, the reality of this real problem in my heart and the suffering of people there, and B, not really admitting that this is not something that could easily be translated into constitutional law for France as a whole.
1: Thanks, John. And a reminder that members of The Local France can read John's latest column on the subject on our website, thelocal.fr. So that's the droit du sol, but there are lots of people who get French citizenship through other paths like residency or through marriage to a French person. But what about losing French nationality once you've gained it? We know we have many listeners applying to become French right now. Could they be stripped of French nationality, for example, if they don't eat enough cheese, Emma, or they cheer for England during a World Cup? Well, not for those. Getting French
3: nationality basically gives you the same rights as any other French person when it comes to things like voting, living here without the need for any kind of residency permit or visa, and the right to come and go from France as you please. But there are a couple of caveats for new French citizens. And the first one of these is the two-year rule. And I found that this is quite a misunderstood concept. Some people think that it means that you can't live outside of France for your first two years as a citizen, or that you can't get divorced if you've got your citizenship through marriage. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that your citizenship can be annulled within two years of it being granted, but only in two very specific circumstances. Interesting. The first one is that you just don't fit the criteria. And I mean, getting citizenship, it's quite a lengthy process. You have to provide this whole dossier of documents, which should be carefully checked. So theoretically, there's no way you would be given citizenship if you don't meet the criteria. But, you know, clearly everyone makes mistakes. So I think this one just exists in case the person who was checking your dossier is found to have made a mistake. They can give you citizenship when they shouldn't have done. The second one is that if you're found to have either lied or committed fraud to get your citizenship, for example, if you just couldn't face taking the French language test so you bought a fake certificate online, or maybe you took part in like a, a fake marriage just to get citizenship, getting divorced after getting citizenship through marriage isn't in itself a problem. But if you get divorced very quickly after your citizenship decree goes through, it may provoke an inquiry. But in that case, authorities would need to prove that your marriage was never real in the first place in order to annul your citizenship. It's not just a case of your marriage has broken down because that happens. Once you've got through those first two years, though, your citizenship cannot be annulled, but you can be stripped of French citizenship in rare cases.
1: Mm, When you say rare cases, are we just talking about kind of terrorists?
3: Um, You need to have done something pretty bad in order to be stripped of citizenship, yes. Firstly, you need to be a dual national because it's against French law to leave a person stateless. And you also cannot be stripped of French citizenship if you have been French from birth, even if you have another nationality. So for dual nationals, you can be stripped of French citizenship in certain circumstances. And that involves, yes, like you said, being convicted of an act of terrorism, committing a crime that undermines the interests of France, or acting on behalf of a foreign state in a way that's incompatible with being French. So, serious stuff. And actually, the new immigration law has added one extra. Dual nationals can be stripped of French citizenship if they've been convicted in France of the murder of a public official, such as a police officer or a mayor.
1: Okay, so most people don't need to worry once you're French, you're French, unless you do something really, really bad, basically.
3: Um, yeah, basically, at present, it's rare to be stripped of French citizenship. There are lots of hoops to jump through. It's happened to 31 people since 2002, and most of those people were jihadists who had left France to fight for Islamic State in countries like Syria. However, there is a historical precedent for dual nationals who committed no crime at all to be stripped of their French nationality. During World War II, the Vichy government stripped French nationality from 15,000 people, 7,000 of whom were Jews. And in a lot of cases, those were people who'd been in France for decades and they'd been naturally back in the 20s or the 30s, and they suddenly found themselves no longer French. Some of them did manage to flee uh, to the US, for example, but a lot of them were deported to concentration camps and killed. And as I said, there's actually nothing in the current constitution that would specifically prevent that from happening again. And there are some politicians on the far right, including Marine Le Pen, who are hostile to the concept of people holding more than one passport. Le Pen actually included an end to dual nationality in her 2012 and 2017 election campaigns. It's not currently part of her platform, but the legal framework of France as it stands at the the moment wouldn't prevent her from implementing that policy, obviously provided she won an election first.
1: Thanks, Emma. And if you're interested to know more about the droit du sol or the two-year rule that Emma referred to there, there are plenty of articles on our website. If you're British and living in France, you will know that banking is not as straightforward as in Britain. Depending on your situation, there may be special banking or administrative requirements. Often it can be confusing. Whether managing a move to live and work in France, purchasing a holiday home or retiring, BritLine can help. Founded in 1999 as part of Credit Agricole Normandie, BritLine's advisors can help you establish a new life in France, all in simple, plain English. To find out more, head to BritLine.com. Now, Emmanuel Macron has called him the figure of the century, while the head of France's constitutional council called him the conscience of the republic. People queued in Paris to pay tribute in a book of condolences for him, and he was given a homage national, with all of the great and the good of France paying their respects. This is former Justice Minister Robert Badinter, who died last week, and I think, Jen, we need to know more about him.
0: So Robert Badinter may not be a household name outside of France, but here in France, people definitely know him. He was a defense attorney and a justice minister under Mitterrand in the 1980s, and he's most famous for having fought against the death penalty, which was abolished in 1981. In 1973, Badinter published a book called The Execution, where he recalled seeing the sharp snap when one of his clients was sentenced to death by guillotine. He said that after that experience, he began his battle against the death penalty. And it was also under his tenure that France decriminalized homosexuality. So he's being remembered as this campaigner for equality.
1: In a 2010 interview with the New York Times, Badinter called the guillotine his old enemy. We kind of associate the guillotine with the French Revolution and the terror, Gen, but France was using the guillotine for quite a long time after the revolution. Is that right?
0: Yeah, the last person in France to be executed by guillotine was Hamida Jandoubi in 1977. Wow, 1977. Yeah,
1: exactly. did not expect that.
0: Yeah, actually, the guillotine was France's standard method of judicial execution until capital punishment was abolished in 1981. And the French penal code even said that any person sentenced to death shall be decapitated, with the exception of people who got the death penalty for crimes against the safety of the state. They would be executed by firing squad. But it's interesting because originally the guillotine was seen as this great equalizer. It's named after a physician, Joseph-Ignace Guillotin. He was actually against the death penalty, but he campaigned for more humane methods of execution in France. Mechanical devices to behead people did exist previously, but he was the one who caused it to be adopted as the only method of judicial execution in France, which is why it bears his name. Prior to 1789, only nobles were executed by beheading, while commoners could be hanged or killed with more brutal methods. So for example, burning, boiling to death. And one man who had assassinated a king, we might add, was even torn apart by horses. And this happened on the town square where the Hôtel de Ville now stands in Paris. Yikes. Yeah. And the guillotine, it was meant to erase class division in capital punishment. And it it was really seen as this more humane and egalitarian option.
1: Okay, could the guillotine or the death penalty in general in France make a comeback? Are there any politicians calling for it?
0: Well, technically, no. So France ratified the EU Convention to Safeguard Human Rights in 1985. This specifically prevents it from re-establishing the death penalty, except in times of war. As for politicians, the former head of the Front National Party, Jean-Marie Le Pen, was in favor of restoring the death penalty as recently as 2012. And in 2021, Eric Zemmour said that he was philosophically in favor of bringing it back. But Marine Le Pen herself has flip-flopped on this issue a bit. But public opinion is not exactly what you would expect on this subject. In the early 2000s, a majority of French people were opposed to it. But since the 2010s, support for the death penalty has actually gone up. According to Ipsos polling in 2015, 52% of French people were in favor of the return of capital punishment. And in 2020, that number actually went up to 55%. Now, these polls do fluctuate a little bit. Um, Another one from 2020 found that it was 46% of French people in favor, with 51% against. But it's still a bigger number than I would have expected.
1: Mm. Definitely a bigger number. Okay, well, let's hope it doesn't make a comeback. I think we'll move on to a slightly lighter topic now. Drive through any French village or village in rural France, guys. What are you likely to see?
0: Uh, Pharmacy.
1: Yeah, could do, could do. Uh,
0: Mairie with a flag.
1: Mairie with a flag. Church, maybe?
0: Yeah, uh, war War memorial.
1: War memorial, good shout, yeah. Okay. Uh, And what about boulangerie? Oh, definitely. Normally a boulangerie. However, uh, there are certain villages that are losing their boulangeries or struggling to keep them. Emma, this is a story you've covered. Tell us more.
3: Yes. So this uh, this week, one particular village is in the news. It's the village of Villerville. It's in Calvados in Normandy. It's actually not far from where John hangs out in his Norman castle. I assume John lives in a castle. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but this particular village, uh, if you've ever seen the classic French film saint en hiver which is released in 1962.
1: That's, uh, that sounds that means a monkey in winter. A monkey in winter. Yes, right, okay. that's exactly
3: what it means. Yep. It's a very famous French film story. Jean-Gabin and Jean-Paul Belmondo. Um, you will know it as Tigreville. That's the name of the, the uh. village in the film. This village is very famous for appearing in this film, which has loads of external shots, this really beautiful place. And these days, it's also really well known as a holiday spot. It's up on the coast and it's between Deauville and Enfleur, which I'm going to guess quite a few listeners have been to one or mm-hmm. the other of those towns. The reason it's in the news this week is that it doesn't have a boulangerie. And its local mairie has been making quite an effort to get one. The mairie has bought a vacant shop in the village. They've spent 35,000 euros fitting it out as a boulangerie. Right. And they're now running an advertising campaign to find someone to come in and run it with an offer of reduced rent while they establish the business. And because Villeville is a holiday spot, it has about 4,000 residents in the summer, so easily enough to support a boulangerie, but only about 600 in winter, which I think is the problem.
1: That's really interesting. You go through French villages, you often see kind of banners outside saying, you know, that They're looking for a doctor's or something like that. But now these guys are looking for a boulangerie. The mairie is obviously keen to attract one, given all it's done. But how common is it in France, Emma, for a village of this size just not to have a boulangerie?
3: According to the Confédération Nationale de la Boulangerie Patisserie Française, there are 35,000 bakeries across France. Now, in total, France has 34,955 communes, but it doesn't quite work out that every commune has a boulangerie because, obviously, some communes, like Paris, have more than one.
1: How Uh, many in Paris? uh,
3: In fact, Paris has 1,360 boulangeries and 95% of Parisians live within a five-minute walk of a boulangerie.
1: Honestly, I think round here that we live within one-minute walk of five boulangeries. I don't think that's an exaggeration.
3: Uh, No, no, my local boulangerie is two minutes walk away, apart from Sundays where I have to walk for a whole four minutes to get the other bread.
1: But look, even around here, I've seen boulangeries close, and not to mention the ones we've mentioned in small villages. Did France have at one time, you know, thousands more boulangeries?
3: It did, yes. Yeah, it's true. There has been a steady decline in boulangeries since about the 1960s. In 1960, there were 50,000 boulangeries, and like most villages had one. And yeah, smaller villages have been hit harder by the decline. But the trend actually shows something quite interesting. So from the 60s until about 2010, there was this fairly steady decline, but but then, numbers stabilised, and they've actually been growing in recent years, mm. especially in towns. In fact, Paris saw a 9% increase in the number of boulangeries between 2017 and 2023. That's a trend replicated in quite a lot of other towns, and the Paris suburb of Saint-Saint-Denis, where I live, has actually seen a 25% increase in boulangeries since 2017. And the reason for this, they reckon, is down to boulangeries, especially in cities, expanding their repertoire and offering lunches, at the same time as the sort of culture of the long lunch among office workers is starting to decline. So on the one hand, you've got more office workers, especially younger people are maybe looking for a, a lighter lunch and a shorter lunch break. And boulangeries have a range of lunch options, sandwiches, salads. Some of them do, you know, like a homemade quiche or a croque monsieur that'll heat up for you in the winter or a tureen of soup. So, I mean, you could say that the French boulangerie has really found a new lease of life in the 21st century.
1: Mm, the one I go to sells crisps, luckily. Um, What about my favourite baguette facts? In fact, I love baguette facts. I know you've got a few for us, Emma. France produces six billion baguettes each year. Can you top that?
3: Uh, that is a very good fact, yes. I have some here from the Observatoire du Pain, the Observatory oh, yes. of Bread, because obviously that exists. They have an observatory their, of bread, yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, so your six billion baguettes a year, that works out at half a baguette per person for every day of the year in yeah.
1: France. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah.
3: Yeah, and actually 320 baguettes are made every second in France. Mm, okay. If we divide that six billion by yeah, the number of seconds in a, in a year. 82% of French people say they eat bread every day.
1: Thought it would be higher.
3: Well, it was 88% in 2016. It is dropping a bit. Oh, wow. And actually, older people are more likely to say that they'll eat bread every day. Only mm. 35% of under 35s have their, their pan quotidien, or their daily bread. And finally, my favourite, I think, the traditional French phrase for describing something as really, really long. You know this? mm Long comme un jour sans pain,
1: Uh, as long as a day
3: without bread. Although I have to say, that is slightly old-fashioned. You don't hear it every day, but I do love it as a phrase.
1: John, we're talking about the importance of boulangeries to village life. We know that villages in rural France uh, have lost boulangeries and even cafes over recent years. What importance do they play to a local village in rural France?
2: Well, it's, it's obviously, you know, boulangeries and cafes, I suppose, up to a point. Uh, more cafes maybe are sort of social focal points for villagers. And we in our commune here lost our only cafe five or six years ago now, which was a blow. It was a place you could go and have lunch, you know, and have a four or five course lunch if you wanted to for, for very little money. It wasn't sort of haute cuisine, but it was perfectly pleasant. And that closed down when the woman retired. It's unlikely ever to open. And it has, you know, essentially destroyed the only business left in the commune. I think now that people move around so much more that they no longer shop so locally as before and therefore you know they will pick up their bread in another village quite easily. I haven't noticed that boulangeries in my part of Normandy which is a fairly rural part of Normandy are closing. I mean I have about nine within 10 kilometers of here some of which are quite good some which are terrible. One thing I've noticed is that boulangeries in the country are much less good quality overall than ones in big cities where there's more competition. Often you get very bad bread in rural boulangeries which is maybe one reason why people are now going to the ones in supermarkets, which are not great, but they're much cheaper. And I think that's one of the reasons why rural boulangeries are suffering, is that nearly all supermarkets now have fairly sort of fresh bread that they make themselves, and therefore it's a much cheaper option for people who aren't fussy about the bread they eat. Interesting stuff. Thanks, John. I mean, look, there is
1: an alternative to real boulangeries that I've seen in many villages.
3: You're not going to start whining on about
1: McDo again, are you? McDo is... No, (laughs) McDo is not an alternative. No, bread vending machine. If I get vending machines... There are 12,000 of them across France and I'd never have gone to one, but um, someone I know who was staying in the French village, she swore by them. She said, go to the baguette vending machine. So I went, I think you paid a euro and you got a warm baguette out.
3: Yeah, they're actually quite good because they actually bake the bread like inside the machine. There's two types. Some of them bake the bread in the machine.
1: Yeah, the good ones. Some of them, the boulangerie. So they're not like, it's normally stocked by the local boulanger. He just goes around all the local villages and stocks them in the morning and it's a way for him to make a bit of extra money. But they're actually all right.
3: They are pretty good. And actually, the food vending machine seen in France is, is, is quite massive. something. Like, yeah. In the in the summer, by the coast, you can actually get oyster vending yeah. machines. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've never been brave enough to try, I have to say. No, I'd be exists.
1: a bit worried about buying oysters in a vending machine. Jen, you seen any strange vending machines in France?
0: Yes, actually. I think it was at the Marseille train station. There was a pizza vending machine, and I'd never seen that before. And my Italian friend that I was with was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine.
1: Hold on. In France, I've seen Conte, you know, cheese ones. Yes. I've seen Andouillette vending yep. machines. like They literally have any, everything. But I think it's a way for the local shops to keep going. You know, they stock these vending machines and I think the local councils help them buy them. So uh, they're not all bad if you see a vending machine. You know? Yeah, I mean, there is you do support like, the local uh, economy.
3: Yeah, there are some in small villages where they actually have like sort of ready meals that mm. they put in for vending machines and they're kind of targeted at older people who yeah. maybe wouldn't cook for themselves that they're proper meals. So they're, they're okay.
1: Interesting. Some great bread facts there. Thanks, Emma. Monaco is the tiny microstate tucked away on the French Riviera between Nice and the Italian border. When we talk about Monaco, we think about the home of the rich and famous, including the likes of Roger Moore and Grace Kelly, who became the princess when she married Prince Rainier III. It's an intriguing little place, Jen, and you're going to tell us more about it.
0: Well, first off, Monaco is the second smallest country in the world right after the Vatican. It's just 2.02 kilometers squared, and it's home to 36,682 people, but only 9,486 of those are actually Monegasque nationals. It's entirely bordered by France, uh, except for its coast along the Mediterranean, and it has a reputation of being a very expensive place to live, which is true. As of 2021, the average price per meter squared in Monaco hit 52,000 euro in comparison to Paris as of 2023, where the average price per meter squared was almost 10,000 euros.
1: Right. But people just go there to avoid tax, don't they, Jen?
0: Well, it is true that Monaco has what you might call a a favorable tax policy, assuming you can afford to live there, of course. They don't have an income tax or a wealth tax or a capital gains tax or even a property tax. But there is a catch. French nationals living in Monaco do still have to pay French income taxes, though they don't have to pay Social Security charges. And Americans are still, of course, required to file IRS taxes no matter where they live. But it's a pretty nice deal for Brits and other Europeans. And it can be advantageous to set up your own business in Monaco, too. Only companies that carry out more than a quarter of their turnover outside of Monaco are subject to the corporation tax, and new startups actually get a two-year corporation tax break. But as for its less-than-savory reputation as a tax haven, it kind of depends on what list you look at. So as of 2023, it wasn't on France's tax haven list. And after adding more transparency and anti-money laundering measures, the OECD also took Monaco off their uncooperative tax haven list in 2009. Plus, uh, the Council of the European Union actually whitelisted Monaco in 2017 for tax purposes. So it's not on their uncooperative list either. But if you ask Oxfam or Portugal, Monaco is still a tax haven. But in terms of the country's general financial profile, it probably comes as no surprise, but Monaco is a very wealthy nation. Actually, over 30% of the population are considered to be millionaires.
1: Mm. Gen- Monaco is almost entirely surrounded by France, as you said, apart from the Mediterranean. Just how independent is it of France, though?
0: Well, it is a sovereign state, and their head of state is not Emmanuel Macron. It's Prince Albert II. Monaco is actually a constitutional monarchy, uh, and it has been ruled by the Grimaldi family for generations, aside from a brief period during the French Revolution when they were deposed. But Monaco and France have a special relationship. There was a previous tradition that dictated that the prime minister had to be both a French citizen and appointed by France. And it was as recently as 2002 that a revision to Monaco's constitution finally allowed for their prime minister to be either French or Monegasque and to be appointed by the monarch. Monaco does have its own institutions as well as an as its own legal system, uh, but it is heavily modeled after France's Napoleonic Code.
1: Okay, what about language, money, police, education?
0: Well, their official language is French, although Italian and English are commonly spoken. And there is the historic language of Monaco, which is Monegasque, and that's taught in public schools, but there are hardly any native speakers left. And even though Monaco is technically not part of the EU, it uses the euro as a currency and and it is a de facto part of the Schengen zone. So there are no border checks between France and Monaco, thanks to that special relationship that they've got going on. Uh, Monaco is home to one railway station, but France's national rail service, SNCF, operates the rail services in the country. And France is also responsible for Monaco's defense. So even though it does have a tiny military force that's made up of the Compagnie des Carabiniers uh, du Prince, these people are mostly tasked with protecting the palace and the corps des sapeurs pompiers de monaco the fire and emergency personnel monaco does have its own police force though and in fact it's actually one of the most heavily policed countries in the world uh, that's because there are over 500 police officers for the small population
1: okay now we mentioned that it's uh, many famous people live there what if i want to move to monaco jen from france is it easy
0: not exactly. Anyone wanting to live in Monaco for more than 3 months must apply for a residency permit from the Monegasque authorities. No matter what your situation, you will need to show proof of adequate funds, housing, and your good character, that means a background check. The process after that is a bit easier for EU citizens or people from the European Economic Area. You basically just need to show valid ID or passport. As for non-EU residents of France, uh, if you've been living in France for more than one year, then you can submit a request to transfer your residence from France to Monaco. But non-EU nationals who want to move directly to Monaco must first request a visa from the French embassy or consulate in your country of residence, and then they will send you onward to the Monegasque authorities.
1: Let's bring in John Litchfield now. John, you've been to Monaco. You've written plenty about Monaco. What
2: do you make of the place? i I don't like Monaco. It's an awful place. it's a bit really. It's like East Germany with millionaires and sunshine. You know it's a very oppressive place to go to if you're not very rich and and a resident of there you know it's it has more police per square yard than any country in the world and doesn't have that many square yards you know it's only about Square mile, the whole, whole country, all kinds of petty regulations about what you can and cannot do—a whole atmosphere of oppression. Really, no free press, and yet here it is, essentially part of France in many ways. You know, it's within France geographically. It's run by French civil servants under a deal that was made with to Gaulle, I think, in the 1960s. And some of its tax—all that. Well, it doesn't have much tax, which is why so many millionaires are there. But it has, I think, VAT, that kind of thing, direct taxes of that kind, which some of which have to go to France. But it's not a pleasant place. Uh, You know, it has this sort of comic opera royal family that um, amuses the Daily Mail and other tabloid papers and magazines, but is not taken very seriously even by other royal families in Europe, as far as I can see, and is, remains, despite, I think... There have been attempts to clean it up, and I think that the present Prince Alba has made efforts to clean up the act of Monaco. It remains, I think, yeah, it remains in the sink, a, a place where a lot of corrupt money is able to survive without much attempt to clamp down on it. New
1: legislation in France to tackle climate change is changing the way you let or sell properties. From next year, you will need to provide an energy performance diagnostic certificate with a rating above a G grade to potential tenants or buyers. If your property is modern, this won't be a problem. However, bringing older properties up to that energy efficient standard could be complex and costly. Luckily, there is help available. To help you plan your renovation, BritLine, the French bank with British thinking, has created a handy on. Online guide. Their tool will help you estimate your diagnostic grade, identify any grants or loans you may be eligible for, and identify local tradesmen. Head to Britline.com, where in their help and resources section, you will find several blogs on the subject. Right, let's move on to our reader question. Emma, in the French press, I'm seeing article after article about energy ratings in homes. We're getting questions from readers and listeners about it. Can you explain to us what these energy ratings are and why they're important?
3: Okay. So yeah, um, they're in the news because the environment minister announced this week that the rules would be slightly eased, but it might be easier just to explain first what they are because they're really important. They can affect the value of your property and even whether you can sell it or rent it out. So ever since 2006, any French property that is for sale or for rent must have a diagnostic de performance énergétique, which is a rating of how energy efficient it is. It looks at things like how well insulated it is, how it's heated, and it gives it a rating from A, which is the best, to G, which is the worst. Properties that are rated as F or G are known as passoires thermique, heat sieves, basically, and they're the ones that are really inefficient. They're usually old, badly insulated, you know, badly fitting doors and windows, inefficient heating. They're the ones that are really hard and really expensive to keep warm in the winter and also hard to keep cool in Mm. the summer. But as well as pushing up your energy bills, having an E, F, or a G rating has legal ramifications for your property. So if you want to sell an F or a G rated property, you will have to pay for an extra energy audit, which is basically just a more detailed look at these problems and how they can be fixed. Property cannot be sold without this, and it's up to the seller to pay for these audits, which usually cost around €1,000. And just having this rating can affect the value of your property. And a lot of real estate agents say it's quite hard to sell them at all because of these restrictions. So at the moment, it is legal to rent out a property with either an F or a G rating, although it is illegal to increase the rent once you have a tenant in. But this is set to change from January 1st, 2025. It will be illegal to either rent out or renew a lease on a G rated property. And then from January 1st, 2028, that will include F-rated properties. And it's set to expand to E-rated properties in
1: 2034. Interesting. Thanks, Emma. Now, you mentioned some changes there. What are these changes in the rules?
3: Uh, Yeah, so basically everything that I just said remains the case and remains true. But what the Environment Minister Christophe Béchoux has said this week is just a couple of relaxations in the rules. And the first one is a change to how the formula for how properties get given their energy ratings in the first place. This will slightly relax the criteria and it will apparently result in about 140,000 properties that are currently rated F or G rising up to an E rating. But before people get too excited about this, this will almost exclusively affect small apartments, usually less than 40 square metres. And it's all to do with the weighting that's given to heating water in the current format. Basically, they say it penalises places that have a small surface area. But if you have an apartment that is less than 40 square metres and has an F or G rating, you can apply to get it and um, there's an online simulator that will allow you to see if it will be affected. And the other thing is they've just added a couple of loopholes in those rental rules that are due to come into place in 2025. The first one is that landlords can continue to renew a lease if they've offered to upgrade the property and the tenant has refused to allow the works to be carried out. And the second is that apartments can be rented in buildings that have scheduled energy-efficient works for the communal areas of the building over the next two years. So it's really just a bit of tweaking. I mean, I have to say also, I'm sure that in areas with a housing shortage like Paris, landlords will continue to flout those rules if they think they can get away with it, as they do at the moment.
1: Mm, You mentioned that. I live in a rented flat and it's F, and I was there when the guy came round to do this uh, examination. You know, he really studied everything and he basically worked out that it would be about thirty thousand euros of travaux or works to get it up from f to a d or an e to make it illegal to rent or to sell but uh, and he kind of said you got to make the walls thicker which means you lose space you got to insulate pull the floor up and insulate the floor but it really is important every flat should have this renting jenny you got one
0: no my landlord never did it and he said he's not going to Ooh, and we that's,
1: just that's illegal isn't it emma <laughs>
3: It is, yeah. But the thing is, in Paris, like it's really hard to find places to live. So, I yeah, know, it's such a pressure. On if rents, you finally yeah. found a place, then that it's good. And there's a not an energy rating, and your landlord yeah. is just saying, "No, I'm not doing it." It's kind of a hard choice.
0: Yeah, our landlord was honest and just said that he didn't want to have to pay to replace the windows yet. And there were, you know, ten other couples looking to live in our flat, and we were mm. like, "Okay, fine."
1: <laughs> but yeah, house buyers and renters really need to know and ask for the energy rating before they buy or before they rent.
3: But in the on the plus side, actually, if you are an F4G rated and. You you own a place mm. uh, that does mean there are quite a few grants like government grants available to kind of help you with the cost right. of doing for works so it's worth mentioning that That's as the well good
1: news yeah Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Thanks to John. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks with a new series of Talking France. Next week, there won't be an episode, but we'll be back after the winter holidays in France, if we all survive them, with a new series of Talking France.
3: Yeah, well, you're going off skiing, so if Ben falls off the side of a mountain, we might never come back, but hopefully he'll be all right and we'll be back
1: in a week. Fingers crossed. The chances are quite high, actually, although there is no snow, which doesn't help my cause of staying on the mountain. Yeah, true. Thanks, guys. Thanks to all our listeners.